It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These events we see these days all underline the urgent need for the Member States and the European Parliament to find an agreement on our proposed Pact on Migration and Asylum. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Matt Karnichnik, Politico's Chief Europe Correspondent, coming to you this week from the mountains of Austria at the European Forum Arpbach, where the hills have been alive with debate about the refugee crisis, Afghanistan, and the future of the European project. What you just heard at the top of the podcast was Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, speaking at a press conference this week after an emergency meeting of G7 leaders on Afghanistan. We'll get into the latest on Afghanistan and the impact it's having on debates within the EU, including on migration. Later in this episode, you'll hear from Joseph Stiglitz, the American economist and Nobel laureate, who spoke to me about the state of our economy around the world and in Europe specifically. And we'll also hear from Emer Cook, the executive director of the European Medicines Agency, about the latest in the battle against the coronavirus in Europe. But first, let's go to our podcast panel. Joining us for this week's panel is Jacopo Baragazzi, our senior EU reporter in Brussels, who covers the European Council and focuses on migration. Welcome, Jacopo. Ciao, Matt. Also joining us is Zosha Vanat, an EU policy reporter and an expert on her native Poland. Thanks for being with us, Zosha. Hi, Matt. So I want to start with the issue of Afghanistan, which just seems to uh, be getting worse and worse from both an Afghani and a European perspective. Let's start with you, Jacopo. What are the discussions now in Brussels on this issue? We'll have uh, an important moment in uh, a meeting of uh, ambassadors that uh, takes place this week, where they coordinate on several issues. One of them is to have a European reaction, not just in terms of evacuating those that are still there and what to do after August 31st, but also in terms of resettling the Afghans. I mean, here the biggest fear is to have another migration crisis, of course, and like the one of 2015. The UNHCR and other NGOs are clearly saying that for the time being, there is no sign of it, that Afghans will stay in the region if the EU and the others will keep on providing humanitarian aid. And so the reactions to this fear of migration crisis are of very different kind. One is to build more fences. Greece has already done that. And here there is a shift in the way 
the EU has reacted so far to fences because when Hungary built its fence in 2015, that quickly became a symbol of uh, how the populists were taking shortcuts in sorting out uh, such a complicated issue like migration. But since then, last March, the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, going to Greece and praising Greece for being the shelter of Europe. I thank Greece for being our European aspida in these times. And this month, uh, a few weeks ago, the Home Commissioner Ilva Jonansson went to Lithuania, that has always flagged that he wants to build a, a fence because of the migrants from Belarus. And this time, the reaction of the Commission was basically, OK, you can build a fence as long as it's not with European money. And this is a, a, one of the biggest shifts in the way migration policy has been discussed over these years here in Brussels. But it's coming to that point, uh, before we uh, return to the fence, this issue of are we really going to see another wave of refugees, which, as you said, is something that a number of NGOs have downplayed. How worried, though, are people in Brussels, the experts in Brussels, do they agree with the NGOs or do they think that, no, that's not right, we really could see another wave and we need to build these fences? What's, what's the feeling there? The fact is that in 2015, there were mistakes done that, of course, if these mistakes will be reiterated also this time, then the flow will arrive. The, one of the biggest mistakes was to cut humanitarian aid to the countries that were hosting the Syrians in 2015. So those in Brussels tend to agree that uh, if uh, the EU does the right things, uh, then uh, this flow could be avoided. Well, where is this aid? Where would this aid hypothetically go? I mean, you can't give a lot of aid to the Taliban, surely, right? The aid usually doesn't get through the authorities or from government. We're talking about humanitarian aid, not development money. Humanitarian aid usually tend to go straight to UNHCR or to NGOs or to the organizations, not to the governments. Development money, that's the money that's been stopped. And development money goes to the authorities. So these are two different kinds of tools. And the humanitarian aid has been increased now also by the Commission. I announced uh, that the Commission will propose to almost quadruple the humanitarian aid coming from the EU budget. We had planned initially for more than 50 million for the year 2021. We will now increase it to over 200 million euros for the year 2021. And this will help. Exactly, because if you want to avoid 2015, humanitarian aid has to increase in order for people to stay there. Zosha, coming to you, uh, you're in, in Brussels, as I said, but you follow the happenings in Eastern Europe very closely. This week, we have seen the problem with the refugees being sent over the Belarusian border into Lithuania increasing. There's the construction of the fence there. What would you say is the, the feeling now in the region on this issue, especially with everything that's going on in Afghanistan? And just a reminder to our, our listeners, the Eastern Europeans have been amongst the, uh, let's say, shall we say, most skeptical on the refugee question in recent years, uh, refusing in some cases to allow in any refugees. You are absolutely right, Matt, and I can speak for Poland here. And in Poland, even though there's been a growing number 
of migrants coming to the country in the recent years, mostly from Ukraine or Belarus, I would say that the society is still very much wary of migrants coming from the Middle East. That's why I would say that the populist right-wing law and justice government can see this situation, this potential migration crisis, next migration crisis, as a political opportunity uh, because they can show their voters, who mostly come from rural areas, from homogeneous communities, from Catholic communities, that they can protect them against those migrants and that they can protect the Polish border and Polish territory by all means. And they are having an opportunity to do that right now because there is an increasing number of migrants from the Middle East on the Polish-Belarusian border. Uh, these are the people who were transported there by the Belarusian government. It is a situation which is very similar to what's been going on on the Polish-Lithuanian border. And since they've been there, Polish government has been muscling up, putting up wired fences. It is building now a wall on the border. They send the army to the border. They are doubling up the troops, um, not letting anyone in. This whole situation is sort of turning into a humanitarian crisis too, uh, because there is a group of migrants, 30 people who have been trapped for more than two weeks now, right at the border with no food, no water. They recently even put up a sign saying, help us, we are dying here. And the UN and the human rights activists who are there and who I talked to, they are urging the Polish government to accept these people in because they are asking for asylum uh, or at least to provide them with food, with, with water, with some basic equipment. But Woso is saying uh, no for now. They are saying that protecting the border of the EU and of the country is the most important thing and no one can even reach these migrants, uh, at least from the Polish side, with any food and any water and protective equipment. I'm in Austria this week and have followed the press here, and, and there have been pictures of the interior minister visiting the new fence in Lithuania together with the Austrian foreign minister. Is this the kind of thing that you're you're seeing elsewhere as well? A lot of talk about the need for these for these fences and barricades to keep Europe safe? I mean definitely this has been the debate of the week, I would say, in Poland. The Prime Minister, the Minister of Defense, they both went to the border area. Uh, they said that they would do everything to protect the border. So so definitely this is something that the government is now mostly talking about. This is this is one of the ma main subjects. But here there is a common theme. They are freaking out uh, in Brussels uh, because of a very simple reason, that after six years, they haven't managed to reach an agreement on a reform of asylum policy across the block. That's the reason why they're freaking out, because there is no system to redistribute any kind of asylum seeker across Europe six years after the 2015 migration crisis. Uh, Jacopo, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker famously said that Europe doesn't build fences 
we're seeing a much different uh, situation now, even if it's not the European Union actually building these fences. What has changed since he made that comment in Europe? Exactly this, that the lack of an agreement on the Migration Pact has produced an effect, an impact on both the two largest uh, political families in the bloc. Because uh, now these fences got the blessing of von der Leyen, who belongs to the Christian Democrats, exactly like uh, Juncker, got the blessing, as explained before, when she went to Greece. As in the socialist, not, not, not in terms of getting EU money for these fences. As in the socialist camp, we had uh, Sanchez, the Spanish prime minister, who a few months ago pushed back uh, something like uh, 6,000 migrants from Morocco. And at the same time, we have the socialists in Denmark who uh, wanted to send people back to Syria and those who were pushing to build uh, camps for processing the migrants outside the European Union, which is an old idea of the Hungarians. Can I just add that this shift has been noticed very, very well in Warsaw and Prime Minister Morawiecki, he even said yesterday that Brussels has learned its lesson from Eastern European countries, which at least during the migration crisis in 2015, have opposed the relocation scheme. And they have always said that Europe should protect the borders. It shouldn't take the flow of migrants. So it seems like Polish government right now is saying that the commission is speaking the same language as Poland, Hungary have been speaking for the last five years. And they have been using this message sent by the commission for the domestic purposes as well, saying, look, we are protecting the border, not letting the migrants in. But even the European Commission in Brussels is saying that we are doing the right thing. So we must be doing the right thing. And in one month will be the one-year anniversary of the Migration Pact, which is the new proposal to reform asylum presented by the Commission last September. And uh, there is no sign that will make any kind of progress. I would just add that despite the harder line that's being pushed by many parties around Europe, there's still a very intense debate going on in many capitals. In Austria, for example, where I am this week, we've seen Sebastian Kurz, the Chancellor, come out saying that the country is not going to take in any more refugees. But I interviewed the president of Austria yesterday, Alexander von der Bellen, and he rejected that, saying that Austria had an obligation to do so and should continue to let in refugees, even though the country has taken in more per capita than any other country in Europe. I just wanted to briefly come to another related subject, which is the response to what's happened in Afghanistan, in Europe, in terms of the transatlantic relationship, because I know there's been a lot of frustration with the United States, with the way the Biden administration has handled this. What are you hearing in Brussels on this front, Jacopo? Uh, there is an expectation that Macron and France will try to cash in on this frustration. But today I was speaking to a diplomat from uh, Eastern Europe, and I was asking him, do you think that what happened there in Afghanistan will uh, mean that uh, the Europeans will take more seriously the need to defend themselves uh, and their expenditure in defense uh, and the military capabilities and so on? And the reply was, uh, Jacopo, so many diplomats are still out of town despite Afghanistan. Nobody seems to give <laughs> any uh, sign that the, the European reaction uh, uh, is going to change. I asked uh, a few days ago to another diplomat from, uh, uh, again, from the East, uh, whether uh, if the French 
will expand the nuclear umbrella to the rest of Europe, whether this will make them uh, more willing to buy into the strategic autonomy concept? And the reply was no, because even if the French say that, uh, then there won't be the political will of the Europeans to use these tools. So I think that it will be produced lots of uh, talks, lots of rhetoric, uh, but uh, at least on the shorter term, I don't expect from what I've seen so far any big change. Well, at least we've confirmed the sanctity of the European summer holiday. <laughs> Jacopo, Tsosha, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's turn to an interview I did this week on the sidelines of the Artbach Forum which brings together journalists like myself, politicians, scholars, and others to discuss Europe's future from this small village in the Tyrolean Alps. I met up with Joseph Stiglitz, who is a well-known American economist and a Nobel Prize winner, and a former chief economist at the World Bank. We did the interview on a terrace overlooking the Alps, so I apologize if you hear any birds chirping in the background. I started by asking Professor Stiglitz to give his assessment of the general condition of the global economy. I guess you'd say still perilous, still a, a roller coaster. Uh, the Delta variant has raised concerns about an upsurge. In fact, there are, is an upsurge in many places. The fact that we've not controlled the disease and that it seems to mutate in ways that can be more contagious, more virulent, more even vaccine-resistant, adds a note of uncertainty to anybody's calculus of where the economy is going. But if you consider Europe specifically, what sticks out for you about Europe's situation? Growth here in Europe and the recovery haven't been as strong as in the United States. You've had a lot of differences within Europe, of course, as you've always had. But how do you see the European picture? First, even though the United States did not have a well-designed economic package to protect the vulnerable and to maintain the economy, we used a bazooka. We used enormous firepower. And quite frankly, it worked. And I attribute a large fraction of the relative economic success of the United States to the magnitude of our fiscal response. Europe has hesitated. It was historic agreement to have 750 euro of euro bonds issued to help, but the money is going to be spent slowly with lots of, in my view, excess caution in the middle of a crisis. And a lot of strings attached to that money. And strings attached. And so even though from, you might say, a design point of view, better designed, the slowness and the stinginess has meant that Europe's economy is not done as well. On the optimistic side, vaccine hesitancy is lower in Europe. And I think that the rate of vaccination may turn out to be the most important determinant going forward of how well countries perform. And uh, in those terms, the United States, unless Delta overcomes that vaccine hesitancy, is in a more perilous position. And of course, for me, 
the worries about the developing countries and emerging markets that have not been able to get vaccine are really first order importance because if the disease continues to rage there, there will be mutations and it puts all the world at risk. And that's why I think the first order importance is to expand the vaccine supply. You mentioned Europe's recovery fund, which is really new territory for the Europeans. It's a 750 billion euro plan. But you also suggested it might not be enough, especially if you compare it to what the United States has done over the past year and a half or so. Do you think that Europe should consider doing more? Because at the same time, there really is a lot of concern about inflation and if it's going to get out of control. First of all, let me say, comparing Europe and the United States is very difficult. But nonetheless, I think uh, in my overall judgment, Europe should do more. I am not worried right now about inflation. Yes, there have been increases in prices of certain uh, commodities. That's inevitable that there'll be bottlenecks. Uh, The market doesn't work very well when you shut it down and you restart it. We've only done it a few times. We did it uh, something analogous to that after World War II, where we suddenly switched from wartime production to the production of consumer goods. And that was a very rough transition. This time we shut the uh, economy down to prevent the spread of the disease and we're trying to restart it. Of course, there are going to be bottlenecks, but those are not fundamental problems. So you ask the question, one of the things that showed up was a shortage of lumber, there are a lot of trees out there. Our capacity to produce lumber had not been diminished by COVID-19. Uh, we just had to restart it. And what you saw there was after a few weeks, the price came down. Similarly, uh, in right now, there's a scarcity of automobiles. Does anybody believe that the market capacity to produce automobiles is really lower today than it was two years ago? So, of course, there's going to be hiccups in the process of restarting the economy. Finally, let me say, if it should turn out that this judgment is wrong and that there are excessive demand problems that are generating inflation more than the kind of hiccup that I just described, we have tools. It would be better for the economy if we raised interest rates. The zero rate of interest distorts capital markets doesn't reflect this real scarcity value of capital. And in the United States, at least, we also have ample opportunity for fiscal policy. We can and should raise the tax rates in order to pay for the basic public goods that our society needs. When you look at the past couple of years, which have obviously been pretty trying for all of us in various ways. Do you see anything positive that has come out of this experience in dealing with the pandemic? Something that will remain a feature of our economic structures in the future? I think we discovered that our market economy was less resilient than we thought, more short-sighted. We constructed automobiles without spare tires. You can think of that as a metaphor for our whole economy. And so it didn't have the resilience that we should have had. Understandable. We, we saw in 2008 that the market economy is very short-sighted. And we see now, once again, that we're very short-sighted. 
the G7 is focused uh, at their meeting on this issue of resilience. So I think that's going to be an issue going forward. We've learned how important trust in government and in science and in institutions and in each other is. Societies like New Zealand, where they have a good government, uh, where citizens trust each other, have done a lot better than the United States, where Trump fomented polarization and division. And for societies thinking about how do we collectively go forward in ways that do better in creating higher living standards, shared prosperity, I think that's a really important lesson. There are other things that uh, we've learned. (laughs) We've learned that we don't have to go to the office every day. And, you know, we knew before COVID-19 that one of the most unpleasant parts of everybody's day is commuting. And we can reduce that. We still will probably want to be in office. There's collective action. You know, interaction, is interchange is very important. But maybe not to the same extent. So this may be a moment where we reflect on more broadly, I would say, social organization. Thank you very much for your time, sir. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Coming up, you'll hear from Emer Cook, the head of the European Medicines Agency, about the latest in Europe's battle against coronavirus. Now let's turn to the other big topic on everybody's mind, the coronavirus. Emer Cook is the head of the European Medicines Agency, which means that she's a top player in deciding which vaccines can and should go into Europeans' arms. Our colleague Sarah Wheaton, who many of you will know from the podcast, spoke with Cook recently to get a better sense of who she is and how crucial decisions about vaccines are being made at the European level. Can you help us get to know you a little bit better? You're a a pharmacist by training, but you've worked your way up through the ranks of the regulatory world. You know, what made you want to go into drug regulation? Yeah, so um, I took a while to find my niche. Um, I did a number of different, worked in a number of different aspects of pharmacy. I worked in regulatory affairs. I was briefly a research and development manager worked in the Irish Regulatory Authority. I think um, while I was at the Irish Regulatory Authority, it was just at the time when the European system was changing. And um, I very much wanted to be part of that. That was one of the reasons that I went to Brussels in 1991, and I worked for the European pharmaceutical industry. But it was really on scientific and regulatory issues and really looking at the new European legislation and how how to make a good legislation that would work for all of, of Europe. And I would say that almost everything I have done since then has been uh, looking at how to make Europe work in the pharmaceutical area, also then actually spreading that to the international side, because uh, I did a lot of work on international harmonization as well, which brought me to WHO. So I think that's what really inspired me to be where I am today. I'm going to go ahead and dive into some, you know, very timely questions about COVID now. So right now, there's a lot of fear about the Delta variant. What do we know at this point about how well the currently approved vaccines work against the Delta variant? And, and how is the EMA keeping track of that? 
So obviously the Delta variant has become what we all hoped it wouldn't. And it's basically the dominant variant in EU at the moment. I think the good news is that the four vaccines that we have authorized in Europe uh, remain effective against the Delta variant. There is a reduction in effectiveness, but it's not significant. I think the key message here is that people need to complete the full vaccination course. So if it's a two vaccination schedule, they need to complete that two vaccination Uh, make sure they have the second vaccination. So get vaccinated, get your second vaccine, and also make sure that you wait for the time after vaccination before you consider yourself fully immunized. And what's your take on, on booster shots? How is the EMA studying this and when should we expect an update? So I should have said, actually, when I was talking about the Delta variant, that we work very closely with the ECDC also in the context of the need for a booster dose. Uh, This is something that would be very much driven by the experience on vaccine effectiveness across the EU. So it's not something that EMA will make a decision on. Uh, What we need to do as EMA is make sure that the companies are ready, that we have evaluated the data, and that the data does delivers what it's meant to do. And another vaccine that people have sort of been a bit confused about in Europe is the version of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine made by the Serum Institute of India. We heard complaints that it wasn't officially part of the EU's digital certificate. Some individual countries have said that they will include it. I understand that officials from the European Medicines Agency did go to take a look at their facilities, but can you help people understand why the same vaccine you know, the same formula is not approved in Europe officially. Well, uh, l- let me just make it very clear that the Serum Institute of India has not made an application to EMA for authorization of the vaccine. What we are looking at is whether the vaccine that is manufactured at sites in India is comparable with the vaccine that we have in our existing authorization. I mean, this is what we do with any new manufacturing site. And specifically with the AstraZeneca vaccine, we see that the U.S. has not approved it yet because they didn't like how the trials were done around Europe, even though the EMA has still kind of given a blanket approval. We've seen individual national regulators put different types of age restrictions on it. Many politicians, including Emmanuel Macron, criticized the vaccine. Um, I'm thinking of the April interview that Marco Calveri did. He's the head of the EMA's vaccines office. Uh, He's told an Italian newspaper about a causal relationship between clotting and AstraZeneca kind of before the official announcement that the EMA made. What has been the impact of all of these kind of different messages about AstraZeneca? Well, first of all, let me just make it clear that we have authorized the AstraZeneca vaccine for adults over 18 years of age. And uh, we have added certain warnings to the patient information based on some of these rare events 
I think maybe what is a message I would like to give here is that one thing we've seen is that when there are differences across member states, and these may be for very legitimate reasons, as in, you know, the state of the pandemic in the country, the availability of other vaccines, the age groups that different countries have chosen to vaccinate at a particular point in time, it does create confusion. And this does have an impact then on vaccine confidence. So I do feel it's something that we need to continue to work on. I think there is never going to be a a one size that fits all, but making sure we all understand the respective decisions and that we communicate in a consistent way, I think is very beneficial. We ask all of our podcast guests for a recommendation of a book or a movie or a TV show. What um, can be heavy or light? Um, What would you recommend to people? A series I've really enjoyed, probably it's quite old now, so um, probably they've seen it already, but there's a series called Borgen, which is about Brigitte Nyberg, who was at that time or is is projected as being the first uh, Danish prime minister. And I have to say, uh, I really enjoyed that series. It's very much a story about professional women with ethics, standards, trying to balance a high profile profession with a family. And it's uh, very entertaining. And I, I hope it's quite true to life as well. Has it struck a personal chord with you? A little bit, a little bit, yeah. I mean, some of the situations that she's been in and the way she's had to handle some things, I think I've learned some things from her. Mm -hmm. And even though you were certainly very well prepared for this job, it's nonetheless been really trial by fire and unprecedented situation. So are there any non-pharmaceutical interventions that you can recommend for you know, anybody kind of confronting a huge unexpected challenge and pressure? You know, I do think I am lucky in that I'm quite a resilient person and I sort of just get on with things. That's something that comes from my family. Uh, My father was a great one of for just saying, you know, just get on with it. And actually, the thing that I hold with me a lot from his advice was effectively, you know, that every cloud has a silver lining. So you always, we were never allowed to say anything was really, really bad. You always had to find what the good thing was. And uh, so you're always looking for something positive in whatever's been thrown at you on a particular day. All right. Well, that's a great note to end on. So I will let you get on with it. As you said, Emer Cook, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks again to Sarah for bringing us that conversation with Emer Cook. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us so you'll get every episode directly in your podcast feed. And remember that you can always send us feedback directly by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm sure some of you will be happy to know that Andrew Gray returns next week. In the meantime, I'm Matt Karnichnik. Thanks to our executive producer and savior, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.